0: running boom of the 70s came during simpler pre-internet times. A unique cast of characters riding that wave came of age. You never knew who would show up, and races became household names, attracting capacity fields year in and year out. Co-hosts Ron Galulli, John Gorman, and Grant Whitney, inspired by the first runners reunion in 2019, speak with some of the characters of the era. Share their stories and where they are today. There's something for everyone in each installment of the Runner's Reunion podcast. Good afternoon, listeners of the Runner's Reunion podcast. We are delighted to bring you episode one of season three. Yes, three years that we've been doing this podcast. And for those of you who might have seen John Gorman, Ron Galooly, or me, Grant Whitney, In the most recent celebration of the runners' reunion, it was great to see all those names and faces present. But that's not who we're talking to today. It's a real pleasure for us to be talking with a two-time U.S. Olympic marathoner, a well-known author whose running training books have been published in 13 different languages with over 200,000 copies. Recently retired chief executive officer of Athletics New Zealand. And perhaps most importantly, a former denizen of the River Street running commune, or thereabouts anyway. If you need any more hints, tough luck. We are so delighted to have joining us literally from New Zealand, Pete Fitzinger. Pete, thank you so much for joining the three of us here on the Runners Reunion podcast.
1: Thank you, Grants. It's great to be here. Um, geez, your three are old friends. I think you've got accumulated 120 plus years of uh, of friendship with you guys. So it's really delighted to be here.
0: Well, now that you've aged us, thank you. Um, let's, uh, let's kind of jump in because there's so much we can cover. Uh, that relates to your time then and your experiences now and in reflections back. And this is what we do. This is how we do this. Uh, I'm going to jump right into it. We do share a common uh, geographic location growing up. We are uh, from the shores of Lake Ontario in and outside of Rochester, New York. Pete, let me cut to the quick a little bit. When in those early days, those formative years, did you have an inkling that you might become a runner?
1: Well, I think like a lot of kids, I just went out for the track team. And it was something that I hoped I might be good at, but really had no idea. So that was ninth grade. And it went pretty well. And with more training, I got a lot better. And so I was someone who adapted pretty quickly to training and improved. And that kind of lit a fire that, hey, if you focus on this thing, you know, you can you can improve.
0: So freshman year outdoors, presumably, right? Freshman year track yes. outdoors. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, reading your extensive bio on Wikipedia, uh, there is a reference or two to uh, some experience wrestling and cross-country skiing. What did those uh, yeah. sports do or, or not do for your development on, on, as a runner?
1: Well, to start off by not answering exactly what you asked, anyhow, um, to show how little I knew about running really was at the end of that freshman year, some of the guys on the team said, you should go out for cross country. And I said, well, what is that? Um, So I didn't even know what it was. Um, But yes, wrestled sophomore and junior because the track coach was the wrestling coach, Tom Cole. And um, he said, look, you're scrawny. You should do wrestling. It'll make you stronger. And he was right. It was brilliant um, because I was a terrible wrestler. Um, one win, 10 losses. losses—and But all that work that you did made you stronger sort of in every way, core strength. We did lots of little sprints and things, uh, climbed ropes, all, all sorts of good things. But then senior year, um, I did cross-country skiing um, because I was tired of losing terribly all winter. And I was actually fairly good at that, but just because I had a good cardiovascular system. So the other guys in the team were bemused that I did reasonably well, and they accused me of running on skis, which, of course, was fake news. I was um, really, yeah, I did run on the skis.
0: Well, that may be the case, but uh, our our, uh, Cracker Jack research team discovered that you finished fourth in the New York State Championship. Basically, as a cross-country skier, is that correct?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, by yeah, running on the skis successfully uphill, and yeah, not falling very often on the downhills. So that was that was my secret: stay upright.
0: Um, and to uh, make sure we close the circle appropriately, what did you since you were two years as a wrestler at what weight? What weight class were you?
1: One oh five, and then. 119 I really bulked up to get up to that 119 huge and I understand now Ron wrestled at 98 pounds and I'm afraid that if we had wrestled head to head he would have beat me and it would have been terrible to be be beaten by a guy who only weighed 98 pounds
0: we could have had of uh had a river street wrestle off had I known you wrestled in high school uh, yes. already already we're going back there this is going to be great I'm, I'm sure wonderful so 98 versus 119 yes indeed we we have a little yeah. discrepancy a little there um pete at the time or is it on reflection at the time did you have any sense that those uh, did you glean anything from the wrestling experiences at the moment and the skiing uh experience at the moment that oh my gosh hey if i you know as i think about those in the context of running Maybe I really can do something to that enter your consciousness in any way.
1: I think I was aware at the time that the wrestling was going to be good for the running. And and it was kind of enjoyable. I mean, Ron can reflect, too, like the training was quite enjoyable. The losing wasn't enjoyable. But boy, when it got to be time for spring track and you could actually win at something, um, you sort of had a fire in the belly after, you know, getting mopped around on the mats all winter. Um, the skiing really was just one season. And yeah, it was it was very enjoyable, but it wasn't something that I then you know uh, to continued with because once I got to Cornell, we had indoor track, and that was a revelation. Wow, you could run around indoors and race.
0: Well, exactly. And Jack Warner really our our shared coach, as a matter of fact, Jack Warner really poo pooed the idea of doing anything non-specific, so downhill skiing, cross country skiing, that was not part of the repertoire. So I can understand that that's where. Uh, you may have dropped things, but Pete, since you mentioned Ithaca, uh, you know Ithaca is gorgeous, and you had some marvelous hills and 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 vales and all of that. And you were there for not just four years; you were there for at least six years. Um, yes. As you think about those years in aggregate, how do you see them shaping your development as a runner? You
1: know, I guess there's two things: there's the mental
0: aspect,
1: and that Cornell, there's a focus on excellence across many things. Plus, it was really hard. I mean, the academics were tough. And so, um, struggling, I guess, a bit in the first two years, then doing pretty well after that, there was a confidence of learning how to study and learning that you could get better at at something. But it's a very inspiring place. Cornell is a very inspiring place with all the different people who excel across a broad range of of areas of, of of disciplines. But the physical environment of, of Ithaca was part of it as well. And as you will know, there are hills up to two and a half miles long in that area. And I just got really, really strong from running those hills. And I can remember in that, um, so I did yeah four years undergrad, then I was there for most of the following year before doing my MBA. And in that in-between year, there were hills that I would have run once a week on Sunday that I was running, say, three, four days in a row um, and just got stronger and stronger and, and stronger. And so, yeah, that that physical environment of Ithaca was really good for my development as well.
0: Hmm. So I don't know if this shows up on Google Google Maps, but um, do you want to give us a couple of names for any of those local Ithaca denizens like uh, Sandbank or any of the other yeah, names well, that-
1: so Sandbank was the most frequent one as an undergraduate. Um, but there was a guy who lived with us named Pete Reed and he got all the topographic maps and uh, for the area and he did an index of, I think it was rise squared over run, or I might have that wrong. And Blakesley was the the king of all the hills and uh, near the top of Blakesley there's a small airport and we used to joke that the planes didn't actually have to descend to to land at at the top of Blakeslee because they were just going flat into it. Uh, there were many hills. Yeah, there were many hills. But I, I do think that's good. You know, it's good strength training, good cardiovascular. It it makes you real strong. It doesn't make you fast, but you can easily convert that uh, to the speed later. So
0: you, uh, when did you graduate? Uh, Graduated 79 undergrad. Yeah. 79 undergrad. And When was the first time you spent any significant amount of time in the greater Boston area?
1: Yeah, it was that summer after 79. So my senior year um, started out really well in cross country and I I broke the Cornell cross country course record. And then by the end of that season, uh, cross country season, I had mono and then kept that through the winter and got my tonsils out and really missed my whole senior year. So I arranged to move to Boston for that summer. And Duncan Scott, who had been Mass State High School two-mile champion, he didn't said, yeah, you know, come to Boston. I hope you find a place to stay, et cetera. And so I can remember coming to Boston, stayed with him a couple of nights, and then went into the Bill Rogers Running Center at Cleveland Circle, hoping to find a place to stay, and walked in uh, you, It's a few steps down into the place, dark in there and said to the guy behind the cash register, hey, I'm this runner from upstate New York looking for a place uh, for the summer. And he looked at me and said, you're joking. And so I thought that meant I was the 10th guy, you know, that day looking for a place. But in fact, it was Dave Azersky who had, I think he had been Mass State Mile Champion several years earlier. He worked in the store and he lived in the fourth floor apartment with two punk rockers. Over the running center. And a guy had just moved out. So lo and behold, I instantly, in my first attempt, had a place to live. It was directly over the Bill Rogers running center, which was sort of Mecca. And I got to share a room for the summer um, with a punk rocker, which was also an interesting experience.
0: (laughs) So You, uh, would it be fair to say that Duncan Scott was almost responsible for you to coming to to Boston in the first place, or were you already attracted because of the run, you know, the the running revolution, the Bill Rogers, and and that whole ethos?
1: Yeah, well, Boston was the place to be, certainly in the Eastern U.S. I think at that time there was probably Boston, Boulder, and and Eugene as three running centers. But Boston was certainly, certainly in the marathon, the the leading uh, center, and there were so many good runners in the area. Ron, I can remember. I think you, Tommy Ratcliffe, and I figured out there were over fifty runners in the Boston area who could break thirty minutes for ten k. And this is, you know, forty plus years ago. So it was already a a, a mecca. Bill Rogers was really the man uh, along with, with Frank Shorter, but along with Bill, there was greater Boston track club and Randy Thomas and, and Bob Hodge and, and many others, you know, running fast. For me, it was wonderful. It was a, a real learning experience that whole summer. Also Tom Dedarian took me under his wing. So I learned a lot from Tom who uh, you know, he'd been part of that environment for a long time. But it was really cool, um, you know, looking out the window and you'd see Bill come in, Coach Squires would come in, Bob Seventy was there a lot, you know, many others. So if you wanted to learn what it was like to really be a distance runner and
0: to ultimately become a marathoner,
1: it, it was the place to be.
0: So I, I'm I'm detecting two themes here. Uh, something already uh, in your in your comment, Pete, suggests marathon was in your vision. And had you already decided that that's where you needed to go or, or that that was going to be your distance?
1: Well, there was it was a real marathon boom time. And so, yeah, in the back of my mind, yes, but I hadn't done one yet. And so it was an aspiration rather than a, uh, a reality at that point
0: mm mm-hmm. um, And as you may know, it, it hasn't been that long since, unfortunately, Coach Squires has passed away. But if I say Bill Squires, uh, what does that conjugate for you? What, do, what kind of connotation do you attach to that name?
1: Well, yeah. So he had training groups and they were always kind of loose. Different people were in them at different times. But I can remember going over the Boston College track I mean, with Bill Rogers, with Randy Thomas, with Bob Hodge, with Dick Mahoney, with others, um, uh, and being part of workouts, but also observing workouts and hanging in as long as possible. And, you know, Coach Squire just say, Pete, you sit with this one out and then come back, you know, come back in for the next 800 because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't keep up at, at the time. He was, you know, he was a visionary. He was uh classically disorganized, um, or seemingly disheveled and disorganized. And, you know, you'd be at the Elliott Lounge, and he'd get a cocktail napkin, and he'd write down the training in the back of it. And that literally happened. And uh, he was brilliant. So yeah, disheveled, disorganized, brilliant, knew exactly what he was doing, um, and really influenced a lot of guys in that Boston area, you know, during that time.
0: Could could you give us a little, when you say visionary, what's uh, what stands out to you that uh, whether it's now with the passage of time, you look back and see it or or what, what leads you to that making that statement?
1: Well, he had, yeah, he had simulation workouts. And so that was a term I hadn't heard, used before until it was from him. And, you know, so the guys who were preparing, for example, for the Boston Marathon course, they were really preparing for the Boston Marathon course. So not just getting in the long runs but getting in the long runs in the right way yeah that's that's really in a in a in a a nutshell i think he would adapt tailor things for what you were going to have to prepare for Um, so that's yeah i think that that was really the brilliance and also yeah you know geez greg meyer was was a huge influence at that time in the boston area as well greg sometimes did i believe more of the workouts on his own and i think he did that because it made him tougher too so greg was a man who was one of the very best and he was he was going to do whatever it took to be the very best you know work as hard as he needed to
0: if we say 1979 1980 greater boston track club what does that bring to mind for you
1: well it's interesting so it's those guys i've mentioned plus it's alberto right so alberto salazar the young, very talented um, guy who who did much more in the years after that time, um, but you know uh, he was brash. He was going to. He knew he was going to be very good at the marathon going into the first one, and he, like Babe Ruth, he pointed at the at the bleachers and said, "I'm going to hit one out there," and and he did. Yeah, it was a juggernaut, and um, I was on. So in 1979. Greater Boston won the team title at the U.S. cross-country champs. Um, and I was on the B team. So they picked seven guys um, for the A team. And I didn't make the A team and was on the B team um, and finished 25th in the race. So, you know, it's not a bad team, actually. And, yeah, I mean, Dan, gosh, I, 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 I'm at risk of missing important things. But Dan Dillon, of course, wonderful cross-country runner stalwart of that team and and many um, U.S. teams going to the World Cross as
0: well.
2: John, you wanted to get in here. Yeah, so it's funny, Pete, that you mentioned that because there's a picture on Facebook, uh, Mike Finelli. Mike Finelli, he's posting all the time. Some of the stuff, he has this, uh, I guess he has a garage and he has just uh, paraphernalia, archaic awards and just, you know... A smattering of everything I love his garage and, and uh it's like a museum and he has this one he posted one picture of some guy named Peter Peter Fitzinger. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think you can see it. But um, yes. yeah he yeah, right there. And it said that you uh didn't make the you didn't make it the top six uh, or oh, top five of the greater Boston cross country team back when they won the nationals. So they said, who they are like, who is this guy? And and that was you. That was just this week, you know, without him even knowing we we're doing this podcast. Uh, what a coincidence. So
1: excellent. But, I, I have that photo. I'm very proud of all the hair.
2: Yes, yes. And, and the beard. And the beard. And mm-hmm. the beard. Absolutely. The beard. That's Absolutely. a tough look. That's a tough look, you know. You always had that, the arms out. You know. So
0: <laughs> so uh Pete, um in 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 full candor, we had a bit of a uh, text chain going along between John, Ron, and myself. And um, John made the astute observation. It's like, well, it seems like the longer the distance, the stronger Pete got. Did you have a sense back then that that was, that you, you know, yes, okay, Boston Billy Marathon, okay, that's in the ethos, it's in the water, it's all of that. But did you have an awareness that that it was um, based on your performances, 10K and above and all of that, that that was the direction you were gonna need to go?
1: Well, I always knew I wasn't very fast. Um, So, you know, immediately ran the two mile, which was the longest thing in high school, 10,000 meters at Cornell. So freshman year, I was running the HEPs 10,000, the longest thing in college. And so, yeah, it made sense to evolve up. I I didn't know how I would adapt to the marathon, but it was in the back of my mind. And certainly, you know, you think about, well, you're too young, you're just a kid, still Grant, but, you know, John and Ron are a little closer to my age. And um, yeah, Frank Shorter, you know, amazing, uh, Olympic gold medal in 72. I still consider Olympic gold medal in 76. Bill Rogers, you know, four Boston's, four New York's, the, and there were there were other guys as well. So there's a sense of hey, this was the marathon's time. The numbers were going up, but the U.S. was you know very good at the top end, and so it, it was the logical thing you know to aspire to. So it was in the it was in the back of the
0: of the mind at that. So, but let me ask you this in a sense that, uh, you know, drill down a little bit here. I'm looking at some of your your uh, performances and um, they start in the in 1980. Travera Tucson, that's a 10 miler. Cascade Runoff, that's 15K. Peachtree, that's a 10K. Utica Boilermaker, uh, upstate New York, 15K. Freedom Trail, Boston, eight miles. Burwick, one for the diamonds, nine. Uh, Runners World, 15K on the track. I don't see with the exception of one, you know, a kind of a, a standard call it Olympic distance in the mix. What attracted you uh, to those kinds of races or did that, or was that just where your performances fell out and you were upper tier?
1: Well, I guess having run 10,000 meters in college, it was then, okay, what was the extension of that? And so I did a lot of 15k races. Um, yeah, 10 mile half marathon, you know, that whole range. And you can do a fair number of those as, as well as certainly at that time, 10k road racing was the most common distance. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, I had some success, uh, particularly at, at 15k for some reason. Um, and that was an extension, I guess, trying to run 15k in a similar way that you do 10k and you can kind of kind of hold on to it, um, and I was particularly good, the hillier the course, the better it was for me versus other people, and again, that Ithaca experience was part of that.
0: Um, Blakeslee, but I, we're, we're going to count on Blakesley. that's what got you there for that.
1: Yeah, part. Blakeslee, Bessemer, Sandbank, and others that fade in the memory at the moment, but I did, I did dabble in the marathon, so um, that, some of those things probably aren't, The list of races that are easy to get but my first marathon was something called the boston alternative and that was in ithaca 1980 april 1980 and it was like the day before the boston marathon and i decided to do it two days before it and i i think i won by 26 minutes um fair to say the people who could be at boston were at boston but it was a great, in hindsight, it was a great kind of thing to do because I demystified it. You know, so I went out, ran the marathon. I ran 2.22, and it was, uh, you know, it was pretty hard while doing it, but nothing bad happened. And so, okay, right, this marathon thing has some potential here. And so I actually did, you know, a few stepping stone marathons um, along the way during that same time period that I was doing the 10Ks, 15Ks,
0: etc. So I just want to make sure I heard that correctly. 2.22 and you won by 26 minutes.
1: Yes. Now, I think the second guy, you might, this might not make the final edition of this, but the second guy was running through Cayuga Heights and he threw down his paper cup and the Cayuga Heights police um, took umbrage at this and made him run back and pick up his paper cup and put it in the right place. So I think it otherwise, it probably would have only been 25 minutes if it wasn't for that.
0: Mm. Well, that sounds like Ithaca. Uh, I can see that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Somewhere during this time period, maybe it extended into you know 1981 or thereabouts, you became a running outlaw. Can you share with us a little bit more uh, detail about that?
1: Yes, yeah. So um, at that time, there Open prize or prize money was not allowed in, in our amateur sport, so there was the amateur code. You uh, that you couldn't have any what we called open prize money, where it's advertised and you knew about it, you know, publicly. So, but athletes were receiving uh, appearance money to show up to races, and sometimes there was prize money that was just under the table. And so a group of us formed the Association of Road Racing Athletes, and um, a circuit of of races um, was put together that was willing to provide open prize money. And the first one of those was the Cascade runoff in Portland, Oregon in 1981. So I was one of 12 athletes who accepted open prize money and was then banned. Um, by, at the time, the Athletics Congress, which was the precursor to USA Track and Field. And yeah, I was banned for about a year. Depending upon what country you were from, there were different different lengths of time, different processes involved. So a few of the New Zealand athletes had also been banned. I know they went through a slightly different process. But it was with the belief that the old amateur standard uh, was outdated. And that all other sports or many, many other sports were professional and that our sport should be as as well. In in hindsight, I think we had a small influence on advancing um, getting to open prize money. There was a period of time where you could accept prize money. You had to put it into a trust fund for very limited training purposes. But that only la- lasted, I want to say, a couple of years. Right. And then we went to the open prize money um, environment
0: that we're in now. So uh, I am curious about this because I, um, yes, I remember the the TAC Trust Fund idea. Um, how long and, and who were the instigators, if you will, of the ARRA? I mean, was this a group of 20, of five, of was this over um, months and years? You know, give me, a, give us a flavor, if you could, a little bit as to what ultimately kind of Push the you know the, the boulder over the edge, and you guys decided to do it.
1: This is dangerous as it's relying on my memory. Um, and part of what I remember is because I've read articles about it <laughs> that have refreshed my memory. But Don Cardong was the, I'd say, the president of the ARRA. He had been fourth in the Olympic marathon in 1976. Um, I think he graduated from Stanford. And he's the race director of the Lilac Bloomsday Race out in Spokane, Washington. Really nice guy. So among the runners, I believe he was the leader. Also, uh, I believe Nike was behind it and helped to fund the legal costs behind it because it was best really for the sport of running and therefore for you know the different companies involved with running to, to have an open prize money situation. I think there, there were probably... 30 40 members okay but it's hard to yeah i'd have to really look that up because who was a member versus who was there versus who were the ones who actually on that day accepted the money and and ended up getting banned
0: so
2: but you know in
1: in hindsight i'm lucky that it all went pretty quick because it wouldn't have been good to be banned for the 84 olympics so uh, actually Yes, indeed. Well, so that went pretty
0: quick. So. Yeah, yeah. So um, one other kind of related question. So what, were, what did you find as the impacts of the band? I mean, so we're talking 81, you know, 81, 82-ish. Is that kind of the time frame before it was all, you know, resolved?
1: So I was able to race in other races that had agreed to be part of that circuit. There was this curious thing called the Contamination Clause, which said that anybody who raced with one of us banned athletes risk contaminating their own amateur status that I remember quite a, an amusing situation because I ran a small cross country race in Van Cortland park called the alumni HEPs. So basically the Ivy league uh, alumni cross country race and showed up and the race director announced at the starting line, Hey, Pete's in this race, he's banned. And any of you uh, run the risk of being contaminated, and it was a beautiful thing because everybody just went ahead and raced. And you know, the the more people contaminated, of course, the more unwieldy this whole um, sham of amateurism uh, and being banned became. And so, yeah, I was pleased to see the solidarity among among many other runners. Uh, but again, I'm I'm very fortunate. The whole thing only lasted about a year, and then the trust fund system was set up and you
0: could
1: win prize money, put in the trust funds. Eventually that, that was eliminated and you could just accept prize money.
0: This seems to be an appropriate moment, um, to bring in that theme of river street, which involves two of the three of us on the podcast team. Um, when did you, uh, who started it, who was primarily responsible and I'll let you guys riff on this a little bit because I'm the I'm the Johnny come lately and the youngster in this group. So um, go for it. All right. Guys. Well, I'm
1: going to defer to John and Ron around who started it. I'm I'm going to guess it might have been Vin Fleming, but I don't yeah, really no, you, know. Uh, yeah,
0: you're right. It, it, it I believe it was Vin and Ed Fleming, along with Scott Graham and Mick O'Shea, might have been the original
2: and uh, um, Tommy Yeah.
0: Oh, Tommy Darty, right? Yeah. Uh, yep. Tommy Darty and then uh, Tom Ratcliffe moved in and I th- I, I've showed up a year after that. So, um, But there was always somebody to, somebody to run with there and uh, a lot of good training runs, and a lot of good friendships made. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Unknown suddenly has the day or the race of his life in some quarters, Skylon mm. Marathon. Oh my, what told you at that point now, you were a New Balance athlete at that point. So can you kind of fill us in in on how that evolved between being a running pariah, a a contagion, (laughs) to now being redeemed?
1: Yeah, so I'd I'd gone back to Ithaca and um, did an MBA at at Cornell and was training in that environment, then had... um, was fortunate to get a job with New Balance, and uh, as an assistant product manager. So actually, you know, doing a, a proper job for for the company that wasn't related to my running, but in that wonderful environment with great people to to train with, and in that, uh, I, I'll go on something that uh, I had been had been quite a bit of planner fascia. Problem. So at the end of '82, I actually had surgery on my plantar fascia, and um, I was living in Watertown at that time, um, as was Joan Joan Benoit just down the road, by the by the way, and a couple of blocks from um, the boat where the Marathon bomber hit out. Um, and uh, I was I had an exercise bike, a cheap exercise bike, on the fire escape, and. I uh, From my exertions through the winter, it was there was ice, and I wrote every morning. I wrote Seiko in the ice, and Toshihiko Seiko was one of the three great marathoners, along with Alberto and Rob Di Costello. And I can remember writing that December '82, January, February '83 in the frozen um, exhalations. But I was in Boston, I recovered uh, well from the the surgery, increased my my mileage, had a good 83, and uh, had a a leave of absence from work at New Balance late in 83. Kevin Ryan, uh, who was a very good New Zealand marathoner, was coaching me at that time. And he arranged me for me to come to New Zealand, run a marathon, um, but really for the main purpose of getting down here, (laughs) because I'm here now, and uh, training through that, you know, through that Boston winter, which was thankfully the New Zealand summer, and I trained like mad. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, during January, February, a- and March before I came back, I did eleven weeks, averaging 143 miles a week really? across that time. So I was just training. My low week was 137, and that means you can't have an off day. You know, if you have an off day and you're behind, um, it's hard to catch back up. So I got really, really strong. I was lean, uh, but in the right way, eating well. And I was, you know, became this this marathoner, I guess, to a greater degree than I ever had before. Mm-hmm. Then came back to Boston uh, and, you know, was back at, at River Street, sharing a room with Ron and, uh, you know, training and uh, did some tune-up races, which went okay. Nothing was startling, and uh, but it was the right marathon mm. preparation. So, really, I was I was well-trained. And I think the tactics of the race on the day worked well for me. I don't know how much yeah, you want me to get in, into that, but the race could have gone a variety of ways, and it, it played into my hands.
0: I I, I guess I'm struck as a fellow upstate New Yorker originally that not that far behind you or certainly close at some point was a fellow for, you know, for the upstate New Yorkers, not that far from the area. John Tuttle, who took third in the trials and unfortunately didn't actually compete at the Olympics because of injury. But uh, I think he started 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 and dropped, started and dropped. That's right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So in that, I mean, in that trials race, there were I mean I was I, I was wearing number 19 based on a, a 212 um, performance seed performance. So it shows there are 18 guys who'd run faster than that. And um, at about 10 miles, I was in the third pack, but the second pack was just ahead and the first pack was just ahead of that. So I decided it was good timing to move up to the second pack. And in doing that, I had a little bit of momentum, so I moved up to the first pack. And in doing that, I was—I'd been running fast, them, so I had to ease. And so after do you know running along, this we're getting to just hitting the halfway mark. I thought, well, at that point, I'll say there were fifteen guys or so in the pack, and that the, those odds weren't very good at being top three. So I let myself go to the front, and there was a guy off the front by about twenty meters. I'll say. And I got up next to him and said, hey, let's see, push it and see if we can you know, break this thing open a little bit. And he said, yeah, that was a good idea. And so I picked it up a little bit and he didn't. And so the next thing I was by myself. And so this was, you know, you think, oh, this was really well planned. What an astute tactician. Um, it wasn't that at all. It was thinking uh, it made sense to try to push it. But it really didn't make sense at halfway to go on your own. But I did. And I thought, look, surely some of those guys would have enough respect for me to, you know, come after me. And um, no, because everybody was looking at Greg Meyer and Greg Meyer was looking at Alberto. And so they just kept running. And I built up a 30 second lead by 20 miles. And then about 21, I think they started coming after me. And John Tuttle was pushing it. Alberto was pushing it. A couple of other guys as well and, and trying to in part they wanted to close the gap and, and catch me but in part they wanted to make sure they made the team right so John caught me first at 25 miles and then Alberto was right behind him and in watching the tv coverage you can see I see John and as you mentioned John's a guy I knew from high school he's a good runner but you know he didn't put the fear of God in me. So I saw John, thought, oh, that's okay. And then I look over a little bit and there's Al and I look, and I look a second time. and I look a third time. And, you know, due to the profan- profanity limitations on the podcast, I won't say what I thought, um, but fair to say that Alberto did put the fear God in me. And I now worried who else is there, but also knew never look back. Right. So if you look back, other people, the other guys get some, um, some feeling that you're not doing, you know, not feeling that good. So I just stuck with those guys, stuck with those guys. And John did look back just before, I'll say maybe half a mile to go. So John looks back, sees he's comfortably going to make the team, and he eases a little bit. Now you got to realize these guys have made up 30 seconds on me in about four miles. So, you know, they'd been running quite a bit faster than I had. So now I'm in third, but rather than worrying, God, who's fourth, fifth, sixth, I think get past John because now you're then you'd be in second. Somebody else can out sprint you're going to be okay. So get past John. Feel great because all this time you've been by yourself. You're worried you're getting passed. Now you've passed someone else and I can see Alberto up ahead. Alberto you know, I'd raced before, but it was true. He had no idea who I was. I'd never been able to see him at the finish of a race before. So the chance to beat Alberto, you know, that was wonderful. And the course went from gradual uphill to gradual downhill there. So I just wound it up. The Marine Corps band was next to it. That was great because he couldn't hear me coming. And I just went by Alberto and crossed the line ahead of him. So it was a, it was a beautiful thing looks like astute planning um but a fair bit of it
0: fell into place john you you want to uh, you have a bunch of stories
2: related to this so i want to let you get in there well first i wanted to uh ask you did you know that when you passed that that first guy who was on to lead that that was roland david from rhode island do you remember that do you remember, do I, you don't I, remember roland
1: i remember roland yeah. i don't remember that that was that Roland was
2: who i had spoken with at that
1: time yeah he,
2: um, yeah he took the early yeah. lead by a lot okay it seemed like you know but he just yeah. went for broke uh said what have i got to lose and so yeah True. so that was a little, little uh trivia and he because i think the best he's ever run was like you know 216 or something like that one ocean state marathon sure.
1: no so, i remember i remember racing roland um also like in 10 mile races i mean most good things do boil down to uh you know a rhode island connection one way or the other don't they
2: yeah so, uh, and the other thing is, uh, is uh, you, you know the story that me, I think it was me, Michael Bryan, Dan Grundy, and Wally, maybe? We were at the Elliott Lounge at midnight and drove to Buffalo overnight um, to see you run. because you see you and Tommy run? Because we were sitting yes. there at the Elliott, and we kind of looked at each other and said, you know, why are we sitting here? At the, we got two roommates you know, at the Olympic trials and none of us are there. So we just, uh, we had to decide who was gonna drive and I decided to drive. We all went to their uh, Baybacks machines and uh, got our money out and drove to Buffalo and uh, voila, there you are winning the race, then losing the race, then winning the race.
1: You know, being from Rochester, New York, um, Buffalo wasn't that far away. I had Mm -hmm. friends from high school there, some of the guys from Cornell were there As a matter of fact some of the guys from Cornell I can see on the on the TV coverage um, running along and I can remember one guy yelling out they're catching you man was and, that
0: Joe uh, <laughs> was that Joe Arthur
1: <laughs> it wasn't it was Casey
0: Moulton who, Casey Moulton oh, oh my God Casey. oh you know, Casey. is
1: there yeah. if you know Casey Moulton Rocky Moulton's yes. brother yeah yes yes yeah oh. yeah but John that oh, was oh, epic gosh. that's the greatest story of all is the leaving. You know, the, to, for one, it was you were at the Elliott Lounge. So, you know, sort of one of the meccas of, of mm-hmm. running. And to leave at midnight and drive all that way, um, you must have just about gotten there at, at the at start we time did. for the race.
2: We did. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't know where we were going. We just you know, had to get the directions to the finish line. And I remember everybody was there. Coach Wilds was there. You know, they had the yeah. uh, post-race party at some bar. And I still remember asking you, so how did you end up passing Salazar like that? Where would where'd you get that kick? And you, you said, me and Tommy doing 200-meter sprints at Harvard <laughs> Track. I remember, I remember that. And, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. And there was Tom Ratcliffe and I did an epic long run, which probably topped me up um, perfectly, but possibly – was a little bit much for Tom. Tom did well. I think he was 20th in the trials, but he was he was capable of, of better. Mm-hmm. We did this long run from River Street and out, uh, out, I remember doing Heartbreak Hill and we were flying along and Tony Revis had seen us afterwards. He said, I saw you guys doing hill reps on Heartbreak Hill and I'm like, no, <laughs> that was a 22 or 24 miler. And at the end of that, we're back on River Street finishing and I wanted to pick it up and a car backfired next to me and I sprinted. I suddenly sprinted from the adrenaline of this and I I sprinted like 200 meters or so. Um, So little did I know three weeks later that was gonna be quite useful to be able to do a bit of a sprint at the end of the marathon. So yeah, thank you Tommy um, for the epic long run and uh, apologies that it probably took a little bit of, of polish off of you going quite that hard.
0: You know, I remember hearing stories. I couldn't believe it. I was, you know, wow, this person, this person that I knew of, didn't know you, knew of. And then, and and you now are in the national consciousness. You, you, and I think it's probably fair to say, though, a lot of people thought, well, that was a one hit wonder. Great for him. He made it. And I remember then at the games themselves, uh, my mother let me actually stay up late enough so I could actually watch the Olympic marathon. And the fact that you got Salazar's number a second time within X number of months, what did that feel like? You ended up being the top American finisher. You proved that your you know trials win was not a fluke because you backed it up a second time. Tell us a little bit about... What that uh, did you appreciate yeah. it at the moment, or was it after the fact that that realization kind of hit you?
1: Well, there there was only eleven weeks between the trials and the Olympics. And um, having been this unknown guy who did well and, and having a home Olympics in the US, I did too much, really. You know, I did many, many interviews, and I got back into training hard, a little bit too quickly as well but I was thinking, okay, how can you use this 11 weeks? And so, yeah, I really went into the Olympics not at my best, and I was quite concerned that I wasn't going to be able to do that, that well. I had a, a little bit of a lower back injury. wasn't I wasn't flowing as I had been. Fortunately, it went okay on the day. Not great. I mean, Alberto, uh, to beat Alberto was in the context if he wasn't at nearly his best. And he he had trained, I think, in Houston to find a place that was really hot. And he was already arguably overtrained from the the couple of, several years of very hard work he'd done. But at that time, I think my ethos was do more, go harder, and I think Alberto's was as well. So he went at the Olympics not nearly at his best. I went in trying to salvage as best I, I could. So in, in hindsight, you know, the 11th was, was okay. Um, I realize also, yeah, I, I wasn't really good enough to be up at medalist level. So it wasn't like, oh, if I'd done the right things, I could have grabbed one of the medals. And, you know, the three guys who did, gosh, their preparation was outstanding. And you look at what Carlos Lopez did in his career, John Tracy did in his career in, you know, in particular, you know, they were at the very highest standard. And Charlie Spedding was an outstanding runner who also did everything right for that day. So, yeah, I was mostly relieved to put in a credible effort um, because it, it wasn't going that well two or three weeks before.
0: So you had 84 was success squared. OK, it it, it was, you know, everything was really. Um, it, it was almost a fairy tale in some people's eyes, I imagine, given how it all, how it all shook out. How did your, or did your life change in the immediate aftermath?
1: Yeah, it changed in the, in the short term in that there was a lot of media interest. And so, as I mentioned, I did many, many, many interviews, and that wasn't something I was um, used to doing. And that Yeah, there was a cumulative fatigue aspect to that. Um, A very positive, John mentioned Magnolia. So uh, John Cronin, or no, Mike Cronin and his family had a a house in Magnolia, which is next to Gloucester, where we had uh, trained the summer of 83, and that made that available also in 84. And so Chrissy, my wife of thirty eight, almost 39 years and I went up there. Um, that was before cell phones. No one, uh, hardly anyone had the landline number. And I was able to go from you know many commitments to just focusing on the training again, which was really the thing that salvaged my Olympic race that I could um, get back. You think about the focus bef- in training before the trials, the focus up in, in Magnolia, before the Olympics has helped me to turn things around and and get back to be able to run another marathon.
0: So but coming out then after the trials and then LA proper, was it back to being every man or were things different?
1: Yeah, no things were I mean things were different in a
0: variety of ways, but one was I had gone from
1: you know a full-time job at, at New Balance, which was great and used my MBA to really having great flexibility from new balance to do whatever worked for me through 1988 Mm -hmm. and so that that was brilliant it was a much smaller company at the time i mean jim davis the owner his his office was down the hall from my cubicle Um, so you know i knew jim and uh it was a cool thing that a guy who was from the company had won the trials there was a competition say with, with nike in a way and alberto was the big nike guy sort of beating alberto was a little bit symbolic there so yeah my life changed in that i i basically worked part-time for new balance from then through 88 and was able to do it in a way that that suited my running in terms of i guess my my focus had been mostly on the marathon, but really from then on, it became almost exclusively on the marathon, whereas other races were generally preparation leading into a marathon.
0: OK. And somewhere along this line, as I want to accelerate towards that second, uh, a two-timer that not too many people can say that, Pete, in the, in the in, you know, uh, when we take a look at it. Um, at some point, there was another degree Involved. Was that after eighty-eight, or was that before eighty-eight, or were you, had you just left uh, New Balance in advance of the trials um, in
1: 88? I, I, I uh, went to UMass Amherst and got an exercise physiology degree, but that was much later.
0: Um, okay, so that much later. Was, then.
1: That was about nineteen ninety-five to. Oh, okay, well
0: um, then let's yeah, let's stay so let's stay cost, focused, yeah. which is an interesting story in itself because now you have at least three degrees, but uh, be that as it may. So, so, you know, working part-time New Balance up through 88. Now we know that the marathon is uh, the place to be for you. It's been confirmed in more ways than one. Did you, were you at all fearful about thinking about having to defend as, you know, the, uh, uh, the 84, you know, trials winner, um, or even the idea of making the team a second time, or how did that The interim period, I don't want to, you know, I don't know too much about that. Can you give us a little sense of of that time? Sure. Well,
1: you know, if I relate back to 84 and being number 19 on the chest, there were a lot of guys who did well, 85, 86, 87. I I had some success during that time. I was third in the New York Marathon in 87 and ran a high 211 there. And I I had, um, yeah, good races in 85 and 86, but I definitely wasn't the top U.S. guy. I would have been one of the eight guys that people would have mentioned as, you know, having a good shot at making the Olympic team. And then my good wife made the New Zealand team. Uh, So Chrissy was named to the New Zealand team at 3,000 meters. She was a a 1,500, 3,000 runner. And so now I had this weird pressure that, okay, my wife's made the team. I haven't, um, we've got this trial situation. And I went down to New Zealand and trained again through the New Zealand summer, the Boston winter. And I strained my hamstring. So I came back a bit early and you know, was getting treatment and had to get ready for the trials. And I was pretty nervous. So it's way easier mentally to be the unknown, right? So you can focus on what you've got to do. You don't have a whole bunch of people saying, hey, you got to make the team, you got to make the team. And I was, yeah, I was a bit nervous about it. I can remember the day before we flew, so that, that trials race was in uh, Jersey City, New Jersey. And the day before we flew, I had this relaxation tape. And that was a new thing back then. So I had the old cassette player and I'm listening to this thing. and It's telling you to contract muscles and relax and all this. And I did that for about two and a half hours. And it worked like I finally kind of got on top of that because wow. I was mostly nervous. And it's Like you got to get from being nervous to being focused and relaxed and a funny little thing. So there was a press conference the next day and it was, say, you know, at 2 p.m. So I found out when that was and I purposely scheduled my flight. So I landed just then. So I wasn't going to be there for the press conference because, you know, I knew that I was right on the edge of handling the nerves. And I can remember I got there and I ran into one of the other top guys in the, in the elevator and he said, Oh yeah, we had that. We didn't see it. The press conference. Oh, I just arrived. And he said, Oh man, there was a lot of tension. So yeah, it was a matter of handling some expectations, handling some internal nerves. I'd, I'd, uh, you know, been a Chrissy, uh, had really added a, a huge amount to my running, um, the, the dedication and focus she had, the lifestyle aspects, the, you know, the improved diet, which I learned uh, largely from her and from others uh, in, in New Zealand at, at that time, sort of a sense of professionalism. But the fact that she'd made the team did make me nervous that, oh, man, you got to make it. So, yeah, on that day, it was, again, a pretty big group. And um, I... I was in the lead group at about 13 miles. There were some surges. And I remember a funny thing happened. Um, We came up to water station and there might have been 15 of us together. And somehow I'm suddenly draped over Greg Meyer's back. So he must have stopped more than I thought. I must have thought he was grabbing the bottle and he stopped. And I'm like over Greg's back. And that was just at a time when, when some guys were taking off. And so um, it got to a situation where six guys had taken off. I was in a chase group of about three or four and thinking, "Uh oh, this is not good. And that's probably, yeah, probably 16 miles. Oh, OK. And then I got to where I was on my own and the group of six was still together. And it was windy, mostly crosswinds. And you're thinking, oh. just focus focus, focus, don't let the gap get any more. While the group of sixes together, that's not good, but it's going to break up. And lo and behold, it did. So by, I'll say, 20 miles, it broke into three groups of two. And so now I'm in seventh, and there's the chance to catch these two guys. And they weren't pulling away. I'm gradually, gradually really, really them in. And then those two split up. um, And it was a matter of, okay, catch one. And just like catching John Tuttle four years earlier, catching someone, I think it might have been Steve Spence, that felt great. And now you're in sixth. And then there's the fifth guy. And then third and fourth had split up. And uh, I think the next one was Paul Gompers. I passed him, but then he passed me back. And then together, we both passed Mark Kirp, who had been in, I think he was in third. And so now Gompers and I are dueling it out for third and it was a real duel you know when i think back the key time was that i'll say 4 miles when i was mostly by myself and just trying to keep the faith that those six you know i would be able to to catch to catch some of them and uh, you know that that worked out in the end
0: that that's a phenomenal story and if if i remember right kerp was a new balance athlete spence was yeah. a new balance athlete you were a new balance athlete was was Paul Reebok or New Balance at that time? Do you remember?
1: I think Paul was Reebok. Um, okay. Yes. Yeah.
0: So yeah. talk about taking a sleepy little Boston uh, company and, and putting it back on the uh, back on the radar. There, that's really something.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, New Balance uh, had grown a lot by then, and they'd had a you know they'd had a variety of, of of successes by that point. But yeah, I was, I guess, proud to be continuing to fly the flag. Um, yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, good stuff. Yeah. Um, I wanted to make sure we covered that. When did, um, and, and we haven't even yet touched on it, we'll try to get this. We should at least have a question or two or, or some brief comment about what inspired you to write. You're in the States or are you in the States? Have you moved to New Zealand? I'm not even sure after this. When did, you know, um, and then.
1: Yeah, well, the writing started with some magazine writing for Running Times. And Scott Douglas had been the editor. And then Scott approached me about doing a book together. Uh, So he had, um, from Human Kinetics, he had the offer to do a book. He was going to do it with a variety of others. But then in talking through, we just decided that he and I would do it. That was 1997, when I was still in the States. That went okay. But that, that book was covered basically 5K to the marathon plus cross country and then there was some discussion, well, why don't you do a marathon-specific book? And that was, uh, I had by that time finished my exercise physiology degree as well. And so that tied in really uh, well in okay. terms of, of a book. So former Olympic marathoner, exercise physiology, um, Scott Douglas as a guy who's a wonderful writer and, and was able to take you know what, what I would write and to make it really suitable for the book. And so this many years later, Scott and I have done three editions of advanced marathoning. And I also did a, another book with Philip Ladder that covered 5K through the half marathon mm. called Faster Road Racing as, as well. So, yeah, it was an opportunity to use the exercise physiology okay. uh, learning. And i had always enjoyed with running times trying to translate The science into what a uh, a semi science for serious runners. So, um, you know, not too much jargon, but not too basic either. And so it's a matter of trying to find just that middle ground, which I still enjoy, you know, to to this day.
0: So that's where the satisfaction is as you look back on all those, you know, those three plus books and X number of editions it's that translation factor so what what is it about the translation that is that resonates with you
1: well yeah i mean there are many other people who do something similar now and do it very well at that time uh, late 70s and just after that there were fewer and so it was a matter of understanding the practicalities having done it personally as a marathoner and having coached uh, athletes as well, trying to understand, you know, the, the practical nature, but also the scientific nature. So people understood why they're doing that, that type of training. So, yeah, I found that very, you know, very satisfying the challenge of trying to get that balance, right.
0: I think we have time for one more quick topic. You've lived now in New Zealand for how long?
1: Gee, in a couple of weeks, it'll be 26 years.
0: 26 years. And it wasn't soon or wasn't too long after you relocated that you got involved with the Federation. Is that more or less fair to say?
1: Well, a bit more complicated than than that. So in New Zealand, like in quite a few other countries, but unlike the U.S., there's government support towards high performance sport. So across a broad range of sports. So for uh, 18 years, I worked for the government high performance sport agency, um, which had a couple of different names at that time. And a real benefit of that is you're working with with rowing, you're working with cycling, you're working with canoe racing, you're working uh, across sports. So understanding what really are the common factors that create performance. And so it's less about the detailed physiology, which is what I've been more involved with on, on the running side initially and trying to gain that broader understanding. Then for the last five years, up until just two months ago, I was the CEO of Athletics New Zealand. So Athletics New Zealand is the member federation of world athletics. And I like to say it's like USA track and field, but way smaller.
0: And so that's quite a trajectory, all of it connected to sport and and fitness and and performance in in so many words. As you reflect back, and you've probably been asked this by local media a, a, a fair amount, but um, you know maybe I'm just more aware of it. But it seems like New Zealanders are doing pretty well on the world stage, and certainly on the running side, you've got Sam, uh, you know Sam Tanner, Gordy Beamish, and all of that. And 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 so, where do you think where do you think the country's going?
1: Yeah, over the last 20 years, New Zealand's gone from winning four Olympic medals to winning 20 Olympic medals in, in games across a range of sports. And there's a commonality. One, it's a focus around the athlete and coach and the few key people with what we call a campaign. And the two things that lead to success are, are learning and adaptability. And you see that in really every case. So the athlete, coach, support team around it need to be learning all the time because you're not in a static environment. And you need to be able to adapt. So it's, uh, you know, what you did last year isn't usually good enough this year, or you've got some injury situation or whatever it, it may be. So that's sort of the cross-sport environment. Within the sport of, of track and field, there are over 40 events, for, you know, over 40 Olympic events. And so you try to figure out how to systematically develop performance uh, in a sustainable way and in new zealand that's primarily around throws and putting more emphasis into coaching and support around excellence in throws over time but the unique thing about track and field is how diverse and broad it is so right now there's a guy hamish kerr he's a 233 high jumper I forget how high that is in feet and inches, but fair to say that that's really, really high. He's, you know, one of the best in the world. And so you have to have the flexibility that if someone comes through the ranks, not in that event group of of throws that you're trying to emphasize, that you can help provide the right support around them. And so that's that's the balance that you're always trying to get because you have limited money, you have limited ex- expertise. Sam Tanner is a great example. So yeah, Sam's now run a sub 350 mile, 331, 1500 meters, but in an era when the 1500 is out of control, right? So with Sam, he's still a very young guy. I want to say he's 23 or something along those lines. And so it's a matter for him, how can he get the right race experiences? How can he and his coach, Craig Kirkwood, and their small support team you know, learn so that come Paris he's better than he was this year. But really, in, in his case, I'd say come 2028 that he's that well groomed, well rounded athlete, really ready to you know to get to medal level.
0: Uh, this is remarkable, and and in the fullness of time, I think Ron, we've probably come to uh, close to the end. And um, I'm struck, Pete, by. Uh, the phrase you are using to describe these last couple of years, the learning and adaptability, this, a systematic approach. And those seem to be, if not explicitly stated, uh, Pete, it really seems like that those could be used to describe you over this journey that began in those, uh, you know, outside Lake Ontario, carried on down through the, you know, the gorges of, of Ithaca, and then really taking root in, in greater Boston. For the last hour or so, it has been our pleasure, John Gorman, Ron Galulli, and Grant Whitney, to have as our guest a fixture of the marathon, one of the one of the legends in the U.S. road racing scene, Pitt, Pete Fixinger. Thank you so f- much for joining us on our first episode, season three, of the Runners Reunion podcast. Thanks, Pete. Thank you, Grant. It's been hey, a real pleasure. You, Pete.
2: Thanks, Pete.